Well, hey, happy birthday, Harvest. How are you guys doing this morning? Good. Good to see all of you. Hey, by the way, I just want to remind you that that extra hour of sleep you got this morning was our birthday gift to you. So that was from us. You're welcome. Hope you appreciate that. You guys are loved. Um, do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, can you open them up to 2 Kings chapter 2? We're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 2, and as always, we have people coming down the aisles who have Bibles, if you don't have one. If you need a Bible, uh, just raise your hand. We'll get that to you. And if you um, don't own a Bible, please keep that as our gift to you. So um, it was 13 years ago this weekend that we launched as a church at the Trillium Banquet Center. And um, it's always kind of an interesting, the, the planting of the church is always significant for me, because I don't know if you know this or not. Um, Pretty much the week we planted as a church, my wife went on bed rest because she was pregnant with our twins, and it was getting to the point where she really couldn't move around anymore. So the fact that our church is turning 13 means I'm about two months away from having twin teenage daughters. So I would appreciate your prayers in that. This whole thing is kind of terrifying uh, for me. But I need to start this morning with a moment of honesty in church. I'm going to ask you to be bold and to be really, really truthful right now. I need you to raise your hand if you've already set up Christmas decorations in your home. All right, raise them up. Be bold. Own it. If, if you did it, own it. Um, most years, I would make fun of you for having a problem because this is very, very early to set up Christmas uh, decorations. But here's where I'm at this year. If God's allowed to make it Christmas on Halloween by dumping a foot of snow on us, I think we should be able to prepare whenever we want, right? This is a judgment-free zone just this year, okay? So um, looking forward to entering the holiday season and... Um, to be honest, I always find it difficult to preach on anniversary weekends because we really do take it seriously at Harvest that when we open God's Word, we want it to be about God's Word. We want it to be about Jesus Christ. We want it to be about the Lord. We don't want it to be about us. But there's kind of an interesting combination of events that's happening right now. Again, first of all, it is our anniversary weekend, and I was actually able to talk to John Benson last night. He was the man who has that beautiful voice who led us in worship this morning. And uh, I, I was talking with him, and he was like, yeah, man, 13 years. He goes, I was here week two. He goes, I missed the first weekend. I, I had to work that weekend, but I've been here since week two. And I just was like overwhelmed, like, man, just thank you. You've been such a, an incredible servant of the Lord, and he has dedicated hundreds, if not thousands of hours to just volunteering here because he loves you and he loves this church and he loves the Lord. So there's something that happens that whenever you have a birthday or anniversary, you think back of how things started, right? I know couples on their wedding anniversaries will watch their wedding video or, you know, we love to tease our kids and tell them the story of when mom went in labor with them on their birthday. Like it kind of brings up nostalgic feelings. And what's interesting is, is uh, in God's Word this week, we're actually wrapping up a study we've been doing on the life of Elijah, and we're going to look in 2 Kings on Elijah's time at earth coming to an end. And so on the other hand, I'm like thinking about death and endings and legacy. So there's these two kind of contrasting forces going on this morning. I'm just going to be honest with you. This weekend's going to feel different. It's going to be a shorter message. It's more of just a recap of what we've learned in our study of Elijah and, and a word of encouragement. I want this morning to be really encouraging to all of us. So here's the question I'm going to ask to start us off. It's this. Um, what are you known for? And I really want you to wrestle with this. Um, we had a good conversation in our small group last night where the guys asked each other this question. If it was your funeral tomorrow, how would people describe you? And what wouldn't they say about you that you wish they would say? Like, what are you known for? 
If I were to go into the community and to your friends and neighbors and family and ask them to describe you, what would be the words that would quickly come to mind? What is your reputation? What would you like to be known for? What would you like to be remembered for? I don't know if you've been following along in the news at all this week, but there's been two kind of significant celebrity deaths that have happened this week. Um, Matthew Perry, who I'm just desperately not trying to call Chandler uh, on the stage because that's how I know him. He's Chandler from Friends. And Bob Knight, the basketball coach at Indiana. And um, it's interesting, both of these guys had like a, a influence or, or were part of my childhood. Um, Friends was like the first adult, a grown-up TV show my parents let me watch. They will deny this, but they're lying to you. Um, (laughs) Thursday night was appointment viewing Friends, and um, Chandler was my favorite character. He was kind of the glue that held the whole thing together. And the crazy thing is, is you could make the argument that he was the most liked character on the most famous sitcom in American history. Massive success as an actor. But if you know more about his story, there is a complex legacy he leaves because he definitely had demons and he battled addiction and was in and out of rehab and in some ways probably limited the potential success he could have had even greater because of personal issues. Same thing with Bob Knight, man. I remember growing up, like Bob Knight was the king of college basketball. It was him and Coach K. They were the two. And uh, Bob Knight, his team in the 1970s, they went undefeated and won the national championship. There's been no team that has done that yet since. Like, it's a big deal. Records in sports rarely last 50 years. He is a Hall of Fame coach. But if you know anything about Bob Knight, a very, very complex man and complex legacy. And he ended up being fired from Indiana for abusive behavior towards uh, players. He had massive anger issues. He was in some ways more known for being a jerk than even being a great basketball coach, right? Greatness on one hand, very, very high highs, very, very low lows on the other. What would people think of us? I remember uh, early on in the church, probably like eight or nine years ago, I was actually in Pastor Craig's small group before he was even on staff. Craig is the campus pastor here. And uh, we were at small group, and he came, and he was giggling. And I'm like, what are you laughing at? And he goes, well, I was talking with a friend of mine who I work with, and I was talking to him about church, and I was telling him I went to Harvest. And he's like, oh, I don't know, I don't know that church. Who's the pastor there? And he's like, well, the pastor's a friend of mine. His name's Calvin Wissen. And my friend's like, wait, 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 wait. Is that the Cal Wissen that played high school soccer at WMC? And Craig's like, yeah, I think it is. And the guy was like, there is no way that guy's a pastor because he was a great player, but he was a huge jerk. (laughs) And and Craig's like, well, isn't that funny? And I'm like, no, that's not funny. That makes me feel really bad. Like, I, I, I hate that that was a reputation that I carried, even if it was just on a high school soccer field. What are you known for? What do you want to be known for? What's your reputation? I'm even thinking as I talk, what's our church's reputation? What are we about? What are we known for? Well, in Israel, still to this day, there is no better reputation than the reputation of Elijah. Elijah is a superhero to the nation of Israel. He is as close as you get to Superman. And this story we're going to read in 2 Kings 2 is really the story that cements his reputation and his legacy. So if you have your Bibles open, 2 Kings 2, starting at verse 6, here's what it says. It says, then Elijah said to him, so who's him? Well, he's talking to his protege and the next prophet of Israel, Elisha. And Elijah says to Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. 
But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on, and 50 of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them. And as they were both standing by the Jordan, Elijah took his cloak, and he rolled it up, and he struck the water, and the water was parted on the one side to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. So Elijah is hanging out with Elisha, and both men know, if you were to read earlier on in 2 Kings 2, that Elijah is about to leave. He, he is done with his time on earth. They know this is their last moments together. And Elijah's like, stay here. I need to go to the Jordan. And Elijah, Elisha is like, over my dead body. I am going with you. I want to be with you until you go. So they go to the Jordan, and Elijah rolls up his cloak, hits the water. The Jordan parts, and they can cross on dry land. Now, there's some significance to this miracle because this is actually a miracle that happened a bunch of times in the Old Testament because the Jordan River runs through the nation of Israel. So oftentimes they would have to cross back and forth and God would part the Jordan for them. But it was always this signal that this was their land, that God was with them. And because Elijah was just able to do this, it was signifying that he was a man of God, that God was pleased with him and he was God's prophet. All right, look at verse 9. It says, And when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You've asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I'm being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, look at this. Behold, chariots and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up in a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. And then he took hold of his own clothes and he tore them into two pieces. And he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the banks of the Jordan. And he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Okay, so there's something really quick I want you to see here. Do you see how kind and gracious God is being to Elisha in this moment? His best friend, his spiritual father, his protege, Elijah, has just been taken from him into heaven. And Elisha starts to weep, and he's like, I'm all alone, he's gone, and he goes, well, will God be as faithful to me as he was to Elijah? So he takes Elijah's cloak and hits the water, and guess what God does? He parts the Jordan again. Guess what God's saying? Hey, Elisha, you're not alone. I'm still with you. I love you. I'm still going to be faithful to you. Your, my promises for your life were not dependent on Elijah. They're dependent on my faithfulness. And, and here's what I love about God. Um, I could give you hundreds of stories of God showing up and caring for and comforting people in loss in this church and in this community. I um, was texting back and forth with a sweet lady in our church who uh, recently became a widow this past year. She was married for 50 plus years and her and her husband just loved each other so dearly. And I hadn't been able to see her in a couple months. She goes to one of the campuses where I'm kind of uh, bouncing back and forth on Sundays. And um, I was like, how are you doing? And she's like, man, I miss my husband like crazy. And it's been really difficult, but God has been so good and he's been so faithful. And he surrounded me with a group of women who are my friends, who I go to church with, and my family has cared for me. And, and listen, I miss my husband, but God has not left me. Right? This is what God does. This is his heart. I love that we get to see that in 2 Kings 2. Um, but here's kind of the crux of the story. 
Elijah is taken up in a chariot of fire to heaven. He never experiences death. Like, that's an amazing thing. He's one of two men in scripture who God miraculously just takes right to heaven. And so if you're like me, you're thinking to myself, man, it's really cool that that happened. And that's a cool story. But what does that have to do with us? Like, what can we possibly learn from Elijah being taken to heaven by chariots of fire? Because here's the truth. I I hate to be the bearer of bad news. That's probably not in the cards for you and me, is it? Like, I don't have the number for that Uber driver. If I did, I would share it. But um, that doesn't happen to most people. We are most likely headed towards a physical death. Well, here's what this is pointing to, and I believe is the point of the entire series and the life of Elijah. It's this. Elijah wasn't special. He was just faithful. Elijah wasn't special. He was just faithful. The tagline of our whole series has been Elijah, a man with a nature like ours. And what's so amazing about Elijah is there's nothing really about him that that's, that's that amazing or that special at all. But he was a man who was committed to faithfulness to God, and God used that faithfulness in powerful ways. So what I want to do is I just want to quickly recap the life of Elijah. Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, turn back one book to 1 Kings 17. I want to remind you how we're introduced to Elijah. 1 Kings 17, verse 1, here's what it says. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. That's our intro to Elijah. We know nothing about his childhood. We know nothing about his upbringing. We know nothing about his parents. There is nothing to indicate that this guy was special at all. He came from a very middle-class agricultural community. We don't, we're not told that he was well-educated or brilliant or strong or good-looking. But here was the thing that made Elijah special is he was called by God. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, this prophet shows up called by God to go to King Ahab and Jezebel's home and and to deliver judgment on them for their worship of the false god Baal. God said, I love you, I choose you, and I'm going to use you for my glory and my purposes. Elijah's story begins with God calling him, God moving towards him. All right, then do you remember what God did to Elijah right after he pronounced judgment on Ahab and Jezebel? He brought him to the wilderness for three years to build his faith. God intentionally built his faith in private, right? Rather than going public with his ministry, right? We said that God wants to have us way more than he needs to use us. And God brought him to the wilderness where he was going to learn lessons that he could only learn there. He learned how to wait on the Lord. He learned to be patient. He learned to pray. He learned to rest. He learned to trust. He learned to see that God is faithful to his promises. And what God's saying is, is before I do anything with you publicly, I want to be sure that you're a man of integrity and genuine faith in private. God took him to the wilderness, a place where Elijah would not have chosen to go to teach him lessons that he had to learn, that he could only learn in those difficult circumstances. All right, the next thing we saw with Elijah is he experienced great moments of victory. Right, there's that amazing story where he faces off against the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And they have this contest where the prophets of Baal build an altar. And all day they pray, they sing, they cut themselves, they dance around, they yell, they scream, trying to get their false god to rain fire down from heaven onto the altar. And Elijah's watching it and he's just kind of making fun of them as they do it. 
And then it's Elijah's turn, and he builds an altar, and he soaks it with water, makes it really, really hard for it to light on fire, and then all he has to do is get on his knees and praise, and God incinerates the altar. And so he's got this really big, literal mountaintop experience. But if you really look at the story, Elijah didn't do anything all that crazy or all that impressive. He built an altar because God told him to build an altar. He poured water on it because God told him to pour water on it. And then he got on his knees and he prayed. The one who made the mountaintop experience was God. It was his power. It was his glory. It was his might that was the star of the show. Elijah was just faithful to take the small steps of obedience and be faithful to what God was calling him to in the moment. Right? And then what did we see next? We saw him experience moments of great doubt and sorrow. Remember what happens? Jezebel says, I'm going to murder you by sundown today. So he runs back into the wilderness and he isolates himself. He leaves his servant somewhere else and he runs into the desert and he is like, God, I don't know what's going on. I'm trying to do what's right. I'm trying to be faithful. I'm trying to honor you. I'm trying to love you. And no one else cares. No one else is listening. He is believing the lies that it's so easy for us to believe. God, I'm all alone. God, you're absent. God, this isn't working. God, this is worthless. And he's like, I don't know how to move forward. I I am showing Israel that you are Lord, but no one cares. God, would you just take my life? Would you end the pain and suffering? Now he is at the point of wanting to take his own life. And guess what God does? He meets him in that moment and he cares for him and he provides for him and he gives him his word, which is truth. And he says, Elijah, you're not alone. But there are other people in Israel who are faithful to you. Rest, get up, continue to be faithful. I have not left you, I have not abandoned you. And he actually says, you're going to have a friend. His name's Elisha, and he is going to follow after you. There were moments of great victory, but also moments of great doubt and sorrow. Next thing we saw is that he left a legacy of faithfulness. Right? Remember last week, he had to go back to Naboth's vineyard to continue to cast judgment on Ahab and Jezebel because they had murdered a man for his vineyard because they wanted a vegetable garden. Right? He's just like, all right, God, what do I need to do? All right, you're calling me to go prophesy against the king and queen who just murdered someone? That doesn't sound like a great idea. That sounds dangerous. But God, I'm going to trust you. He remained committed. He remained faithful. And what I love is he was concerned about the next generation. He built up Elisha to be the next prophet of Israel. And we see in this text that there were 50 other men, the sons of the prophets, men that he was teaching, instructing, spending time with, equipping to be faithful. He wasn't just concerned about himself, but he was building a future of faithfulness for the people of Israel. He didn't view his life as what can I get out of it alone, but it's how can I impact others and leave a legacy of faithfulness? How can I be remembered and who's going to carry the torch for the nation of Israel? He was building a future of faithfulness. And then the last thing we see is that he was taken to be with Jesus, right? His story ends with him being ushered to heaven miraculously. And here's the cool thing. He didn't just go to heaven. He went to heaven to be with his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? And we know this because in Matthew, when Jesus goes to the mountain of transfiguration and he brings his friends, and just for a moment, he shows his full glory to his closest disciples. Guess who's on the mountain hanging out with him, encouraging him, being a friend, ministering to him? It's Elijah. There was a personal relationship with Jesus that Elijah has and continues to have to this day in heaven. He was taken to be with Jesus. All right, 
so that's the recap. Where am I driving this morning? It's very, very simple, and I want you to hear this and believe this. The life of Elijah is the life that God invites each and every one of us to live. Did you know that? That the story of Elijah is a model of what can be yours and my story. I love this about the life of Elijah. He's just like you and me. There's nothing special. There's nothing different. But he can serve as a model for what our story can be, right? He was called by God. Do you know that we are called by God? Do you know that God calls us too? In 1 Peter 2, it says this. It says, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Just like Elijah, our relationship starts with God calling us out of darkness into light. Right, that we ourselves, our standard position before God is selfish, arrogant, making ourselves enemies. But God calls us into salvation. He makes us his children. He moves first. He pursues us. He loves us before we ever moved towards him. And our story begins with God calling us. Can I ask you a question? Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Has God called you out of darkness into light? Like, here's maybe a a, a way you can answer that. Is your hope fully dependent on what Jesus Christ did for you? Can you honestly say that Jesus is your Lord and King? Where do you put your hope? Where are you putting your future's security in? Have you been called by God? Right, the next thing God does is he built his faith in private. Are you learning the lessons that God wants to teach you? Are you a person whose faith is growing? Are you learning how to wait on the Lord? Can you be patient and trust him when you don't understand what's going on? Or are you so quick to run to panic and anxiety and I've got to fix everything right now and my life better be easy and it better make sense or I'm going to freak out? Can you say, man, God has shown himself to be faithful to me over and over again, and he provides. Can I ask you a question? Are you the same person in private as you claim to be in public? Are there things you're hiding? Are there disconnects? Is there a lack of integrity going on that you need to deal with? Right? This is how God builds us. Here's a question. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Do you have a real thing with him? Right? Our faith is not going to church and doing the right things. It's not about outward actions. It's about hearts that are captivated to the fact that God would love us so much he would send himself to die for us. And that same God indwells in our hearts and dictates the trajectory of our lives. Like, do you wake up and like, man, Jesus, I love you. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for giving me the gift of today. How can I serve you and how can I bring glory to your name? It's not complex. Does he have your heart? All right, here's a question, right? The next things we see is he experienced great moments of victory. Man, it's funny. Um, I need to be transparent with you. The fact that I am here 13 years later, I, I need to admit this. God blew my expectations for what our church could be in this community. I sold God so short. 
And when I come here and when I talk to you and when I know who I know and have seen how God has saved people, how people have been baptized, how lives have been transformed, how marriages have been restored and healed, like I am just humbled. Like, God, you did more than we could ever imagine. Like, I feel like every time I get to hang out with you guys on a weekend, it's a mountaintop experience, right? But there's also been moments of doubt and sorrow and concern and fear. Like, let's do this. Let's encourage one another. How many of you would say that, man, in following Jesus Christ, I've experienced both the mountaintop and the moments of doubt and sorrow? Who could say that? You know why? Because it's part of following Jesus. It's both. If it was only mountaintop experiences, we would never learn that he's faithful even in the hard times. He's good. He is faithful. Um, Kind of getting to the question I asked you to start, are you leaving a legacy of faithfulness? You know, it's interesting. We work so hard as a culture not to think about death, don't, do, don't we? Like when people get sick, they go to certain places, and, and that's where they go. Like when we hear of celebrity deaths, it kind of jolts us and rocks us because we all have to deal with our mortality. What would people say about you if your funeral was tomorrow? What is the legacy? Is it about your skill? Is it about your intelligence? Is it about how many friends you had? Is it about what you owned or what you did or what you had? Or where in that conversation would it be about a heart that was faithful to Jesus? Are you impacting the next generation? Listen, God has given all of us spheres of influence to have an impact and leave a legacy for Christ. That might be kids. That might be grandkids. That might be parents. That might be brothers and sisters. That might be neighbors. That might be co-workers. But what is the legacy as people know you? Are they saying, man, that person just really loved Jesus Christ? Is that what they would say about you? And then here's the last. He was taken to be with Jesus. And I want to sit on this last one for a moment because I want you to understand something. We might not get the ride in the chariot of fire and the whirlwind to heaven physically, but the Bible is so clear that for the Christian, death is not something we need to be afraid of at all because, hear me, spiritually, you and I do not die. Did you know that? 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And then in 2 Corinthians, he says this. He says, so we are always of good courage. For we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. He's saying, listen, the second we are not here anymore, we are with the Lord. And he's like, so while we're here, we live by faith and we have good courage because we understand that right now in this moment is as close as we'll get to hell as we will ever be in eternity. Right? I've talked with so many people who have lost loved ones, and they're like, man, as much as I miss them, I don't want them back because they're with Jesus and they wouldn't want to be back here. That we have a hope that is rooted that the second we breathe our last breath, we will be taken to Jesus. And by the way, how do I know that's true? Because Jesus said so himself. When Jesus was talking to the man on the cross as he's being crucified, the robber who deserved execution. Remember, one of the robbers was making fun of Jesus, mocking him. But the other one's like, no, he is the Lord. He's the Messiah. He's done nothing wrong. And Jesus looks at him and says, today you will be with me in paradise. There will be no hesitation. There will be no waiting. There will be no going through having to earn your righteousness. But you will be with me. Okay, so here's the thought that I love to have, and I need to clarify this. I don't have any evidence that this is the case. I'm not trying to make an argument for Scripture. This is just something that I think might be the case or I kind of hope might be true. I wonder if Elijah 
being taken up on chariots of horses and fires in a whirlwind was just him being able to experience physically what we are all going to experience spiritually. Like, how cool would it be? Like, I don't know what it looks like to be taken up to Jesus, but it's probably going to be pretty cool, huh? And I wonder, are there going to be chariots of fire? Is there going to be a whirlwind? What will that feel like? And listen, I could be completely wrong. It doesn't matter because at the end of the day, we're still going to be with Jesus. Like, this is our future. This is our hope. We share the same destination as Elijah in Christ. What are you known for? What is your reputation? And some of you might be thinking to yourself, man, um, this is definitely not my reputation. This is not what I'm known for. My life has looked very, very selfish. It's looked very, very different than the life you're laying out here. Well, again, guess what we saw last week? Do you know what God loves more than anything? He loves stories of great reversals. God is most glorified when people who have been selfish and have been sinful and lived for themselves, when they acknowledge their sin and say, you know what? My only hope for salvation is in Jesus Christ. That that is what gives God the glory. And by the way, all of us as followers of Jesus, that is our story to some level and to some degree, right? All of us were slaves to sin. All of us had been enemies of God. And there is no one in here who can say, Jesus loves me because I'm better than anyone. Our hope is in the fact that God loves to change the trajectory of sinners' lives. It's our story. That can be your story as well. You know, it was funny. Um, last Last weekend, we have this thing called Party with the Pastors. And uh, how many of you have been to a party with the pastors before? Raise your hand. Um, yeah, a bunch of you have. So what it is is a couple times a year, we have this thing where people who are new to the church, they get to come and they get to meet the staff. They get to hear about the history of our church, get to learn a little bit more kind of about what we believe and how our church functions and how to get plugged in. And um, the, my favorite part is you kind of go through the talk, through the spiel, but at the end, you just kind of get to talk and hang out and get to meet people and connect with them. You get to have casual conversations. And uh, I was talking with a young family last weekend at a party with the pastors. And they're like, you know, we, we've tried a bunch of different churches. And they're like, we, they're from Grand Rapids. And they're like, there's a ton of good churches in Grand Rapids. And they're like, man, but we have just really, really fallen in love with Harvest. And I asked them, like, why? Like, there's a lot of really good churches in Grand Rapids I could recommend. And they're like, well, for us... Um, We've gone to churches that love the Lord, that are biblical, that are great, that are solid. But the thing that we resonate most with Harvest is every weekend when we come here, it's not about us at all, but it's about God. That we try to disappear and make it about who God is and his glory and how he can empower our lives. And we just love that. And I'm like, man, that might be the nicest compliment I've gotten in 13 years of ministry. Like, I want you to hear this. Our desire for our reputation in this community isn't about us at all. It's about the fact we want to be about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he has the power to save, that he has the power to transform, and that our lives are just mirrors of that and testimonies of that and microphones of his goodness. And so here's what I want to do as we kind of end our anniversary service, our time together. I think it's fitting for us to close by celebrating who it's all about, and that's Jesus Christ. So we're gonna do that by having communion together. Don't, turn any, don't put anything away, I've got some more work for you. you got, I know how it goes. Um, here's what I wanna do. I wanna close our time by reading together Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. You can follow along, it's on the screen. But let's look at Jesus Christ. It says, long ago, at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, talking about men like Elijah. 
But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. See what the writers of Hebrews is saying there? He's like, before Jesus, we needed to know God and learn about God through the prophets. But because of Jesus, we don't need to know what God's like anymore because Jesus is God. He's the exact imprint of his nature that he has created all things. And I love this. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. All right, but here's my favorite line in this whole text. It's almost like an afterthought. And after making purifications for sins. Think about that. That God himself the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, the one who is upholding this moment by the word of his power, he came to earth and he took on flesh and he paid the penalty for our sin by living a perfect life, fully pleasing to God and then willingly taking our sin and shame and being a substitutionary sacrifice for us. He did not need us. We didn't bring anything to the table but he is good and he is faithful and he is patient and he loved us so much that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. It's all about Jesus. That was Elijah's story. God called him, God empowered him, God was faithful with him and God brought him home in church. God loves you and he called you and he will empower you and he will be faithful to you until the day he takes you to be with himself. Here's how communion works at our church. Um, you are free to take communion if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You don't have to be a member of our church. You don't have to attend our church regularly. You don't have to know the secret handshake that we teach at party with the pastors. Don't need to know any of that stuff. If you love Jesus, if you're a follower of his, we would invite you to take communion with us. And what's going to happen is, is our ushers are gonna come forward now. They're going to pass out two cups after I pray. They're stacked on top of each other. One's the bread, one's the juice. And then after the music is done, our worship leader will lead us in communion and then we will respond with a song of worship. So let's do that right now. Let's pray. Dearly Father God, I'm just so thankful for this church. I'm so thankful for... Um, really got a legacy of your faithfulness. And a God, there um, is so much we could thank you for and praise you for and give you credit for just in our local church. And God, you are doing this in, in hundreds of thousands, if not millions of places all over the world. And it's all about you. It's all about your glory. It's all about you getting the honor you deserve. God, right now in heaven, you are surrounded in a throne room where angels and saints are bringing glory to your name. God, what a privilege it is that we get to be a part of that and echo those praises in some way. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.